Hello, I'm Joe Glenton, and welcome to Warrior Nation, the only podcast in the UK offering a critical lens on the British military and its relationship with civil society. How do I introduce Fiona Gallagher? Because she is such an interesting person and has been around uh, my life for a few years now, and it's hard to encapsulate her um, because um, she's involved in peace and reconciliation she has a very interesting backstory she's very humble she'll never tell you she's an incredible singer she's an incredible character um a, a, a proper comedian but i think ultimately she's she's a good friend of mine and has been uh someone who um has informed me about uh, irish politics and history and really helped me develop an interest uh, in it i first met fiona through there was a period of interface i talk about veterans for peace a little bit on this podcast but there was a period of interface between uh people in the north of Ireland uh doing kind of reconciliation stuff and veterans for peace and that's how i know fiona but it's a great privilege to have her on uh, my dear friend fiona welcome thanks very much joe um god i, I hope i live up to the height now yeah i'm sorry <laughs> i knew that you would be mortified because i know you're a very humble person but uh, but it's all true but it's all true well, i do like a good sing song though especially after a few guinness but We'll say, we'll say no more about that. No, part. no, a rare talent, a rare <laughs> talent. Also, Fiona uh, just had a starring role on the uh, BBC series Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland, um, and I would encourage, encourage everyone to go and watch that because she's um, she's fantastic on it. Um, but I just wanted to to start off just to just to, uh, for you to just talk about your your background so people understand where you're coming from. Um, can you just give us a, a little potted Hi. a potted history of Fiona Gallagher? Who is she? Oh, well, my my background really is just, um, I was born in 1968 into a Catholic family in, uh, in Derry, mm-hmm. um, also known as London Derry to some people. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> have to mention that, or as I would say, you call it Dora Colin Kill, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. But um, it was uh, it was 1968, as I say, I was born. I was born into a family of uh Two, two boys, and at that time, it was five girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, my younger sister, she came along a wee bit later. And um, so it was a Catholic family, Catholic upbringing. Uh, and actually, where we lived in Craigan at that time in 68, there were there were Protestants living there as well. It wasn't always like a separated kind of society here. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, was, I was the seventh. Out of eight children, and um, <laughs> you know, the best one ever. You know, the second last, but child is always the best. My sister <laughs> will say they save the best, they last, but it's not true. But, um, <laughs> but we would have, uh, we would all, always class ourselves as Irish. Mm-hmm. So I would come from an Irish background, um, uh, and, and you know, I suppose I was always all singing, all dancing, I was always very. You know, trying to get everybody's attention in mm-hmm. my uh, not so quiet way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it was a busy household. Um, we lived in Craigan until 1970, so I was about two uh, when we left Craigan. We actually moved to um, the waterside area of Derry, which at the time and still maybe, well, maybe not so much now, but uh, at the time especially, it would have been more a Protestant area. Mm-hmm. But we we moved there because it was a bigger house, uh, having such a large family, um, and that, you know, I was two then, so we stayed there until I was about 
five, six, and that was an interesting time. <laughs> but uh, basically, just from a really big family, and um, you know, very close in the family as well. Yes. We were uh, we were always very uh, close, and you know, um, you couldn't you couldn't sort of not know one without knowing the other. And it yeah. still happens today. You know, people would see even my children would say, "Oh, you have to be a Gallagher. You're definitely a Gallagher." So, I uh, we, I uh, we were we were a big connected family in yeah. Craigan. Yeah, um, and so I mean, '68 is um, is a, is a really important year for the period of time we're going to talk about um, because that's I mean, that's like as it's as you know, is it, it, it just before or as it's kind of ramping up uh, into the period we know. Um, mm-hmm. as the troubles I actually it's an interesting question for you I think Fiona I was I'd, I'd framed this uh, this documentary I'd done a tweet about saying about the troubles and I, another good friend of mine uh, from the North Island from West Belfast said actually Joe the troubles can be a problematic term because it sounds like um, uh, uh. something which has just gone out there's a bunch of people fighting that's often how Ireland is framed it's not about mm-hmm. anyone outside just the Irish are fighting again kind of thing how do you feel about how do you feel about that that term? Is it a term you prefer? Do you think the troubles captures it, or it's not adequate? No, it's not adequate. Mm-hmm. I, um, I do have uh, a problem with the troubles, mm-hmm. um, but it is the terminology that most people understand. Yeah, it's a very popular so, term. In, it's a very British people say that, and I think there's more to it, isn't there? Oh God, there's way more to it. Uh, you know, I think across the world, everybody had kind of got the. Um, it was called the troubles. Mm-hmm. It was never a conflict and it was never a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was always called the Troubles because it's kind of made out, um, to me, if you have if you've some troubles, if you have a few troubles, mm-hmm. they're temporary, they're not lasting, they're they're not, you know, something to write home about. You know, it's, it's like making a drama out of a crisis. Yes. Um, and I think that that's the way it was being put, was that it was just troubles. It's a wee skirmish. It's, you know, don't be worrying about them. They can fight amongst themselves. Yes. Um when it was very much a conflict and it was a war. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I will at times say the troubles, but mm-hmm. I also will say, I think it's like, it's like using dairy, London dairy. Yes. It's using the, the terminology that people will understand. They, they know what you're talking about first. Yes. Yes. But I do, I do think the troubles uh, kind of minimizes everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. does, it doesn't actually um, really give the depth, the, the chaos, that was happening here sure sure so mm. i i totally get what your friend's saying um mm. it was it was much more it was deeper and it was darker uh it was quite insidious yeah what's sure. going on here mm. i um we, it came up because we, we he had read a book and i was reading a book it's a book by a historian tim pat coogan i've got his name right i've, re, I've really started to read a lot about about that period mm-hmm. of time and the book is called it's, it's called the troubles but in the first uh, opening paragraph he says um because the idea of the troubles kind of frames it as a 30 year or a 40 year thing and he's actually the troubles so-called were 300 yeah. years old when christopher columbus landed in america this is not a short period of time the the stuff in ireland whatever we want to call it is the better part of a thousand years old yeah. old. so i think i think it's the attitude towards the irish mm-hmm that's I think that's uh, where it comes from is the attitude towards the Irish. Mm-hmm. You know, basically uh, what we were uh, kind of marked as was savages and navvies, and mm-hmm. you know that uh, 
you do hear you hear the term at times muck savages. Yes. And that literally comes from the fact that we were looked at um, as a very primitive and um, animalistic people. Mm-hmm. We were never that. We're, we're quite a cultured people. Very. And even even all the way back, you know, um, I'm sure the Irish have gone across the world and mm-hmm. built many cities. Yes. You know, many cities in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're more than we're more than just savages. Uh, and I, it's, it's interesting because Ireland, if you're English, Ireland pops up every now and then. The English right. like to forget about Ireland. It's in the memory hole. Uh, but then it pops up and what immediately becomes evident is a deep anti-Irish and anti-Catholic uh, feeling. Um, and you would think, you would think, given the fact that Irish Labour built large parts of Britain's infrastructure, there might be a little bit of gratitude um, <laughs> uh, for, for what the Irish have done. But but uh, we, we're, we're yet to see that. But to, to stick with that theme... I think um, uh, our mutual friend Lee, who's also on this series, he, he talks about mm-hmm. this very well, and I want to hear your perspective. Often when we talk about Ireland, uh, we, we talk about it in frames of sectarianism, and it's important to talk about that. Um, but I wanted, uh, it, we also want to talk about prejudice, which we've touched on, and the economics and the inequality which is built into the north of Ireland, particularly the bit that was sheared yeah. off, cut off by the by the British and formed into a separate statelet. Um, and I want to talk about your, your growing up in, in Derry, uh, the, the inequality of that system built into it must have been very apparent to you. Is that right? Well, it was. Um, actually, even when I was born, I was, I was born the 2nd of October 1968. And on mm. the 5th of October 1968 was the Civil Rights March. Yes. So I don't know if it was me brought on the trouble. I'm not so sure because, <laughs> but I do know that uh, when I was born, my at that time, you know, uh, mother stayed in the hospital for maybe six mm. days or seven days. Yeah. And uh, of course, I was born three days before the civil rights march, and my mother was very. Um, she liked she liked a good protest. I would say, like yeah. myself. You know, but if, if she had a conviction and, and she really was behind something, she she would uh, show up. You know, she wouldn't just give it lip service. She would show up to uh, show her support. Yeah. And my father was the same. But my mother was the one in the hospital having me. And uh, <laughs> she she had a kind of like an argument with the doctors and the nurses, you know, that don't worry, I'll come back. You know, I'll, I'll just leave her there. I'm going to go over <laughs> to the Civil Rights March, but I'll be back for her. Yeah. And and such was the feeling because it was there was a lot of um inequality here, especially with employment. Mm-hmm. You know, especially the one man, one vote. That's yes. that's what the, the civil rights march is for. Um because if you were a Catholic family and and at that time it wasn't just one Catholic family would have lived in a house. It could have been two or three Catholic families. Yeah. Um and you could only have a vote if you were the owner of that property mm-hmm. and more times than not, not saying it was all the time, but more times than not, it was, um, it would have been a, a Protestant landlord. Mm-hmm. So what you had was the lack of, um, you know, equality. And it was mostly Protestants were having the say of what was happening in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, that in itself, you know, we think of it in terms of, you know, that was so long ago. Um, it's not really in the grand scheme of things, you know, as we're talking about, 
we have centuries of um, persecution against the Irish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's quite uh, recent. It's yeah. Because, you know, I have to say, from the time that I was born, um, this is kind of, you know, has been an ongoing thing. People were driving for equality, especially from the Catholic side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the employment, you it was manual. It would have been very menial and manual yeah. uh, employment that you would have had. Uh, you would never have had really Catholic um, people being high up in any offices or you know or any workplaces. Yeah. It was always very much uh, on the, the bottom rung of the ladder. Mm-hmm. So the, there has been that fight, and I think that's because I understand that, and that's what I grew up in. I think that's what I am that kind of person determined. Uh, if I feel that there's um, a right to have the voice heard, I'll I'll be there to support it. Yeah, but but you had you had all those divisions, as opposed to you know with, with that going on, it, it, that there was a, a beginning of a fallout then between you know maybe Protestants and Catholics, where maybe Protestants were thinking you know the Catholics were maybe rising up a wee bit too much or, or getting above their station, sure. so then there became friction even really before the trouble started. Mm. And it's it's important to notice because as I've come to understand it, and you you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Fiona. The the civil rights movement in Ireland was pretty was similarly modelled to the kind of one in the states um, by by black by African Americans, and it yeah. was a it was it was a peaceful movement for uh, for equality, um, which we we still see things like that today around particular issues. But the um, but Absolutely. that seems to have changed, and I think I guess it's what another thing that I've I've become acutely aware that English people, uh, British people tend to forget is that there was a long period of that kind of struggle protests and banners and stuff like that um and that started to change to some degree it's not that everyone abandoned those politics but on bloody sunday which occurred in in your in your city i can't i don't know how old you were you can't have been very old but do you remember that do you have any memories of that um that event i was i would have been just uh i just would have turned Three mm-hmm. in the October before that happened, so yeah. I was I was very young, so I wouldn't I wouldn't have any memory of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my what memory I do have is that because of what happened on Bloody Sunday, mm-hmm. um, you know what happened with my brother Jim. Yes. After Bloody Sunday, like like many many people in the city, he joined the IRA. Mm-hmm. He was sixteen at the time. Yeah. Um, and my memory. Because of Bloody Sunday, mm-hmm. as I have scattered memories of Jim being there whenever uh, we lived in the waterside, whenever I was just being a wee bit. Yes. Um, and then there's a period of uh, he's not there, mm-hmm. and it's you know when I'm being older, kind of reflecting back, I oftentimes thought that I had um, I didn't really have a brother. You know, it was kind of like it was very, it was fragmented. Yes. So because of Bloody Sunday, because I'm joining the IRA, mm-hmm. obviously then he was uh, he was arrested um, and charged with membership of the IRA mm-hmm. and also his part in planting a bomb, mm-hmm. which I have to say, it doesn't hurt anybody. You know, the, a warning was given. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody was injured. It was it was more a ploy, what, what they did do to get the security forces out, yeah. the attack. They attacked the security forces rather than attacking uh, civilians. Yes. But um, but for his part in that, he he was jailed for uh, four and a half years. Yeah. And he ends up in the the infamous 
uh, Long Cash Prison. Yeah, it was it was on the Crumlin Road, mm-hmm. and he was in Long Cash, and then uh, eventually the the last place that he was was McGilligan Prison, and that's where he was released from. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, there's all those memories that go with that, and and it is it's quite fragmented in my my memories. You know, it's like sort of times as like I don't know if it when he was in Crumlin Road or was it when he was Long Cash. It just all has merged into one. I've always remembered him, you know, just kind of uh, sitting across the table from me. I never saw him really standing up, you know, because... Yes. Um, so this is prison visits. Always, You're going into yeah, visit. Yeah. Aye, and the prison visits. So there's always a warder watching everything that you're doing. and mm-hmm. uh, So there's all of that. But, um, yeah, all, all of that kind of sparked off around Bloody Sunday especially. Uh, yeah. But I, I just, I wouldn't have... A memory of it. I just there's there's a memory that I do have, and um, and it was my granny used to live on the Lecky Road, mm-hmm. um, which isn't too far from where the Bloody Sunday events took place. And as we're you know we're we're going over to visit my granny, and it's it's all rubble and it's you know like there's smoke. It's it's really it's it's like just devastation. It's, the brandy, the bog side is electric rubble mm-hmm. and around the brandy well. Um, and I often thought that I had dreamed this because I remember asking my mommy and daddy, I was, I was saying, I don't know if this was a dream, but I have this vision, this memory of walking, walking to goody grannies or, or going somewhere and there's all this rubble. It's like, it's like everywhere's kind of broken down and there's smoke rising. And that's what, that's kind of, I think, when I was a teenager. And, uh, my, my mother said to me, she says, no, no, you must have been dreaming. Now, it was only about 10 or maybe 15 years ago. There was something came up on the TV. And it was as if, um, it was literally picked out of my head and put on the TV. What was that it? Was, and images, images of the, it was, of the conflict. It was an image of, um, of the bog side mm-hmm. during the, the riots, you know, during, after Bloody Sunday, where everything was just like rubble and broken down, yeah. and I was like, hey. it was it was definitely a memory that had been so far back in me, yeah, in my mind, but it had come to the fore, and uh, you know, so there's there's things like that. Even though you don't think you're being affected, even as a child with all of that, mm-hmm. you actually are. Yeah, that is something you carry. So may it would be good to because what I, I what I think you do lots of things really well, but what I th- you do particularly well. I want to talk about the experiences of the troubles, uh, so-called, particularly as a young woman growing up in Derry, a place where where there's a lot of antagonism, which is occupied, uh, and there are different groups. Um, uh, Mm. Could could you just 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 unpack some of that experience for us? As uh, maybe you have you have a a fantastic anecdote about um yeah your house getting raided i guess because of the stuff jim was involved in your family was a target it'd be great for you to just to just riff a little bit on the on the kind of textures your life as a as a as a young woman growing up in a place like Derry. growing up here um really it was uh, the abnormal was so normal Mm -hmm. um it was normal they they go to school um and they stopped by the 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 brits yeah. Was this a daily occurrence? I'm trying to just trying to get a sense for people here of how militarized that place was. There was always roadblocks so and checkpoints. Day in, day out, from the morning to the mm. night, twenty four hours round the clock. 
there was always a presence. And also, the thing is, I remember even being in my bed, and you got to know the sound of the, the jeeps. Mm-hmm. You got to know the sound of the, you know, <laughs> the the police or the army. You could tell the difference nearly between which was which. Really? Okay. <laughs> Honestly, your your ear became so attuned to it. You know, you have the helicopters always up as well at, at any time of the day or night. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was. It, it definitely was. It was always, um, you know, if it wasn't, you know, just gears being stopped mm-hmm. uh, by soldiers trying to chat them up, you know, just really shoot okay. the breeze. Yeah. Um, but you'd always have seen it was a thing, and it's something that you just don't realize it's so abnormal. Mm-hmm. You know, you always seen fellas getting stopped and frisked, mm-hmm. hands up against the wall, legs kicked out to the side, you know, their bodies being patted down. Um, and it was really, they were just, you know, walking about, minding their own business, trying to get from one place to another, especially in the town, you know, in the city centre. Yeah. Um, when you went under the city centre, you know, to get your groceries or even just shopping, uh, you couldn't go from one part, part to another. Every so many hundred yards, there was a civilian search bay. Okay. Um, there was just, just always, you know, and it was, and we're talking about uh, armed military. Yeah. It's not like they were just walking around; they were all armed. Mm. They were armed to the teeth. So y- y- there was always a sense of danger. There was always impending. Um, you know, it's it's there was always something that was ready to happen, mm-hmm. could happen, and would happen. Um, I, you know, just go back to my childhood and thinking about that. How you're you're literally being. I can remember the wee coat that I had on me going through one of the civilian search bays was, you know, you had to, had to open your coat and you were frisking you down and they were looking and taking babies out of prams and yeah, uh, it was it was so demeaning. And presumably, on top of the the um, the economic stuff which we've we've spoken about, on mm. top of the inequalities that adds to adds to a grievance the fact that you're heavily policed. Uh, and and your town is militarized and stuff like that. It, it clearly wouldn't it, make the feelings no. less less sharp. Well, let's just say it didn't endear them to us, you know. Really, um, mm. and to be fair, you know, even though uh, Jim had been arrested and was inside, mm-hmm. um, after Jim was killed mm-hmm. uh, by a British soldier uh, after six days after he was released from jail, um, things just got worse and worse. You know, yeah. it, it ramped up, as I always say. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, they would they would come to the door and they would ask for Jim Gallagher. And mm-hmm. my father, his name is Jim Gallagher too. Right. And he would say, um, I'm Jim Gallagher. And they would say, nah, now nah, you're too old. Uh, mm-hmm. where, where's where's the young man hiding out? Where is he? Mm-hmm. And this is after Jim's dead. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so things like that would have happened. Or we had... Um, was a picture, just you know, like a small framed picture of Jim as well, um, sitting on top of uh, the TV, and you know, one way or another, it was always would have been knocked off or smashed or you know, mm-hmm. or picked up. Oh, who's who's this handsome boy? Where's he? Where's he yeah. hiding out? No stuff like that. Just do you think they were go- goading your family deliberately? Do you think that was what was happening? I they were because you know what I I had another brother. Um, you know, before he got married and was out of the house. And one of the memories that I have, it really, 
um, it, it really gets me when I think about it, is uh, not long after Jim was killed, um, my daddy and my brother are being dragged out of the house by the by the soldiers. Yeah. And my brother hangs on to the to the, uh, the fence of the neighbour next door, and they're really, you know, dragging and pulling him. And then one soldier brings the rifle right up to his face, and I can just, I can remember standing beside my mommy, mm-hmm. and she lets out this kind of piercing, kind of, it's like an like an, a wounded animal nearly, a mm-hmm. uh, really scream. And, and all she can see is uh, her other son's going to be murdered in front mm-hmm. of So you had all of this happening all of the time. And the house would have been literally, I mean, it wasn't as if they, they put things back or, you know, when they took things out, they weren't they weren't just going through drawers. It was, everything was thrown out, tipped out yeah. from the top of the house. I mean, literally from the, the attic, the roof space, down to the very bottom, you know, carpets pulled up floorboards pulled up broken mm-hmm. and then just uh, after a good few hours you know this would have started about four or five in the morning all oh, right okay yeah uh, so yeah. it's not it's not Maxim, a maximum example. disruption kind of absolutely absolutely ma- maximum to the max for sure um and, and so you know they're coming out at that hour of the morning uh and just creating so much distress and chaos and uh turmoil and then off they go without as much as, oh, sorry, we didn't find anything. And this, they never find anything. Yeah. So, so this was a constant. Um, yeah. So, uh, you do that kind of thing then in Butterji, even though, even if as hard as you might try not to feel like that, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that was part of my growing up that, you know, there was one occasion especially that, uh, I remember. And it was, um, I must have been about nine-ish, I think. And uh, the soldiers came in, they were, it was like extra chaos that time. And it was just, everything was, voices everywhere. There were three uh, soldiers in, in the room with uh, me and my sisters. Mm-hmm. And it was so uh, traumatic and, and just everything was going on. Um, I, because of the fear, my fear, I ended up wet in the bed. The soldiers roaring, you know, first they, they get out of, get out of the bed. And then one of them pulls back the, the covers and drags me by the arm. So I'm, I'm kind of hanging, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of this boy's arm kind of thing. And, um, and I'm soaking my pants is wet uh, because I've wet the bed with fear. Mm-hmm. And then they start laughing at me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, call me dirty and disgusting and all. Mm-hmm. So. And, you know, it's not that my mother wasn't there. She was trying to get under the room, but there were so many other soldiers kind of blocking her way. Yeah. So there's that level of intimidation, even for, for children. So, um, and, you know, it was just, I never believed that to be a necessary part of anything. Sure. I had to, maybe we could, it's, it'd be good to to just run with that a little bit because I was over... Um, about two weeks ago, about two weeks ago, um, in uh, in Belfast, um, and we were speaking to some people, uh, people kind of forties through fifties and sixties, and there's a fascinating. I mean, people are very welcoming over there. It's not like London. I advise everyone to go and check out the north because people are much friendlier, despite these this this. this um, and I guess that's what I'm getting at: this sense of generational trauma. Like all of these people who are incredibly friendly, we're relating their experiences. 
um, to us. And there's this sense, I'm not a psychologist or a psychologist, there's a sense that their lives, a lot of those guys spoke very frankly about problems mm-hmm. with um, with PTSD, with alcohol abuse, with drug abuse, and, and they were very open about it, and I, I really appreciated it. But there is this sense, and you must see it right in front of your face all the time, of a generation of people in Ireland who are deeply traumatised and the impacts that's had long-term over their lives. I I see it all the time. I see it within my family. Um, I, I've always been somebody who, if I have something to say, I'll say it. Mm-hmm. Um, whichever way, you know, sometimes it was, it was kind of through the arts, you know, with the singing and, and kind of doing drama and stuff where I, I kind of became a different character. So this was an outlet for me to, to kind yeah. of get things out of the system. Um, but I have a sister who, you know, who is quite literally so traumatized too that, um, she can barely speak about what happened. Mm-hmm. Not only did Jim, just on her life as well, just about herself, you know, uh, she's very, very quiet on it. There are other people as well who, who will never open their mouth about it, who can, who can never speak about it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally so, uh, traumatic for them to even recall anything. Yeah. So it is, it is kind of dull down with either drink or, um, it's usually prescription drugs, you know, yeah. they, they try and settle them. It's um, it's still very raw here. Mm-hmm. Although there is a sense of, you know, I, I know for myself and and even even uh, my sister who I'm talking about, um, who's really traumatized by it all. There's the will and the want to move forward, not to keep going back to the past. Yeah, you know, we don't live in the past anymore. We we were through the worst of 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 the worst, you know, but. But what's the point in keeping living there, mm-hmm. re-traumatizing yourself? I think what we have to learn to do is, rather than um, stay enraged and embittered um, and angry and, you know, really hurting ourselves all over again, sure. I think we have to try and move forward because if, if we want a better Ireland, you know, and should that be a united Ireland or should it still be divided? We want we want a better way of living for not only ourselves but especially our children for our grandchildren. Yeah. The the younger generation shouldn't be bearing the scars that that, that we carry. Um, it's not fair on them, but I do believe that they should be told about the past and be told very honestly. I think there is sometimes, um, you know. And the peace and reconciliation it can be like an industry where it's you know mm-hmm. well that's okay you know i think you have to you, you can't pat each other's back and just go oh but you're okay now we're all friends yeah i think if we're going to move forward we have to have really really difficult conversations i think you know i'm somebody that will if i have something to say it'll, i'll just come out with i'll try not to be hurtful mm. but I have to be honest about how I'm feeling or the experience I had in the past because I've, I've kind of been told before I was too honest, mm. but I didn't say anything other than what I've, I really says now. Yes. Um, yes. And I think for us to move forward uh, as, as a people, uh, you know, coming together, you have to be honest about what has happened. You have to be honest about your feelings, have mm. them difficult conversations. You don't have to agree with each other. 
but I do think just listening to each other mm-hmm. and understanding that that person has the right to feel the way they're feeling and express um, how how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is there is a legacy of deep hurt here. Um, it's just you know, it's it went through such a, a tumultuous past, but there's going to be so many people will want prosecutions. You know, like we were, I'm going to just talk about the legacy bill as well. Yes. Um, there are people who actually just want to be told, "I'm sorry, I did this. This happened to your brother, your sister, your family." Yeah. That, and that's and the thing, it. isn't it? Not everyone wants the court case. Not every. There's different ways people look. Many people have different. They want different outcomes, don't they? That's my impression, anyway. They do, but and I think that you know. And it's everybody's right to they feel how they're feeling. You know, if, if they want the prosecution, mm-hmm. if it's merited and it's warranted, they should have it. They should be able to go for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll be other people who will say, no, for me, and the, and the thing is for my family, the soldier that uh, killed my brother was actually charged with manslaughter. Yes. Um, and he, he was sentenced to four years. I think he'd done about two and a half years. So we've we've had a prosecution. Uh, does it make us feel any better? No, we didn't have a brother. Yeah. You know, somebody was brought to account for it, and rightly so. But for some families, it literally is just about getting a grain of truth, getting the authorities to actually turn around and say, either there was collusion, there was this going on, uh, your 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 family member was taken from you for no good reason. Yes. Um, and but you know, and that's that's not just from kind of my side of things, uh, from the Catholic Nationalist Republican side of things. Yeah. This this is all encompassing, Joe. It's mm. um, there's so many people that have um, been just left devastated by by the legacy of our past. The legacy bill. Um, I have mixed emotions about it. I do really have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I think sometimes I, you know, people should be able to, to go for that. And then I think uh, it's just perpetuating a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think um, I think it's been taken out of our hands by the British government, who literally are the ones that put all this upon us. That's how yeah. I feel. Um, and I, I do think they're what they're doing, they're delaying. There's so many delaying tactics. And um, they're just waiting for the people who were witness. Or could bear witness to it to be yeah. dead, so it's all it's all done away with. And I get, and I get that you know a lot of people are are willing to move forward, but there are also people are going to be people left behind who deserve um, answers, who deserve that time that they may they may get to have in court. Um, it's you know what it's it's not an easy it's not an easy subject. Uh, no. It's just it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know which way it should go, really. But I don't think it should be the British government taking it away from us. No, because people should be deciding that. You would think they would be the the last people. Um, I mean, they have. I mean, there are all kinds of agendas here. Um, uh, uh, forces Watch. There was a similar bill, as you know, Fiona, about Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan. And it's always seemed yeah. to me to be less about. Um, it's always framed as protecting veterans that seems to be like the leading edge of the marketing around this but i know in the in the case of the island legacy bill it will also stop the families of soldiers killed from pursuing 
justice by whatever means. Um, it was so so British soldiers killed by paramilitaries will also be thrown right. under the bus, as it were, which which makes me think. Actually, this isn't what it this isn't what it is, but it's a very good way to sell it to people who are very patriotic and love right. love the union, the butcher's apron. They love the Union Jack. Mm -hmm. um, it's like an easy marketing uh, ploy, for sure. Um, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I I feel that everybody uh, across the board doesn't matter who it is. Mm -hmm. um, if there's right and there's reason for for somebody to be brought to account for what they've done, mm -hmm. um, I think that that should be there. Yeah. Is it going to keep uh, us raking up the past? I don't think it's going to make any difference because that's always going to happen. There's not enough. There's never enough answers, or there's never enough things put in place. Yeah. Um, they actually, for the, for the British government, they actually they say stand up and say, um, okay, we hold our hands up. You know, we we are a major reason why all these things happen to so many people. The atrocities that happened here, mm -hmm. and also you talk about veterans. I'm not I'm not uh, discounting veterans. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never been in the military. Uh, well, I've never wanted to be in the military. No, well, <laughs> but but you know what I mean. The way the way I see it is from somebody completely on the outside. You have a, a government, uh, you have your Ministry of Defence, who is like bigging up the British Army all the time. Mm -hmm. And they get these young people and mould them, break them. And once they're maimed and they're beyond use and mm -hmm. they're, they're not fit for purpose anymore, it's like they're cast out and nothing's really put in place. They stand them down, look after them, make sure that they're doing okay. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it should just be up the veteran charities to be picking up the slack for what what the government and the, the Ministry of Defence have, have done to them. Yeah. Um, I think that's their place. And I and it really bothers me that that people are being used up and spat out like that. Mm -hmm. Um it's it's just not on. So I don't think that uh, the British government should uh, you know be preening their feathers too much and thinking they're they're doing they're doing great for everybody and especially um, veterans. Yes. They're using veterans as um as a ploy. You know, they get the curry favour. Yes. Yeah. It's de that's definitely my sense. I know we've talked about this a lot. Um mm -hmm. that's definitely my sense that the vet they, they they like veterans if they can wield them um for their own particular purposes. In a, probably in a similar way, in a similar way that they um uh they will the very successive British governments will wield the unionist community when it suits them, when it suits them to do that. And I suppose a classic example of that is yeah. kind of when the DUP came into power, which is when lo lots of people in England were like, who are these people? Who are cre uh. cre creationism? <laughs> uh, uh, but the rest of the time it's forgotten. But I think that's, um, that's kind of one of the tragedies within it. I mean, I spend a lot of my time trying to convince British military veterans that the government does not love you. It might say it does <laughs> at no. times when it's useful, but they certainly don't. And there's very little evidence to suggest that it does. No, they sure um, don't. And you know something, uh, you see whenever <laughs> the DUP uh, went done with uh, the government, the Conservatives, mm -hmm. <laughs> first of all, I, w I was like, what? Oh my God. You know, I was like, this is mental. That This is terrible. All the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh, no, 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 hold on a minute, hold on a minute. I think now is the time that the people 
over there uh, in England, Scotland and Wales mm-hmm. will understand exactly what we're putting up with. Yeah. Because, you know, oh, listen to the Irish moaning again. Oh, mm-hmm. listen to them from the north. You know, it's, um, I just thought to myself, maybe this is the best thing that's ever going to happen. That yeah. people will absolutely understand how absolutely nuts and bolts <laughs> their way of thinking is. Because you know what, for as you say, creationists and all that, but for for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people here, regardless if it's Sinn Féin being the main party or DUP being the main party, mm. um, and Sinn Féin are doing really well at the moment. Yes. You know, and but then we have we have no Stormonts uh, sitting because no devolved government because, well, I think uh, you know. I think the protocol has been used for for a lot of uh, reasons, and I think one of them is um, for the DUP not to sit and 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 government with um, with Champagne being the head party. Mm-hmm. Now nobody can tell me that that's a democratic process. That is not democracy. We don't have such a thing as democracy. I think people really um, delude themselves about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know what. What people want here is for the, the devolved government to sit in Stormont. They sort out all of the things that have gone on about, you know, around uh, education, mm-hmm. around social housing, around health, around the infrastructure of of the north. People want to be able to put food in their, their bellies. They want to be able to heat their house. They want to be able to not be worrying that they're, they're going to be in debt to their eyeballs and they can't love. And that they're either eating or heating. Do you know what I mean? Every the, the normal person person should be Catholic Protestant, or you know, we are a multicultural society now. Everything in between. Mm-hmm. Everybody just wants to to love um, a fair and decent life uh, with with what we should be having. Everybody equally. So whether you have a United Ireland or whether you have a Northern Ireland, still the people are still going to want the same. Fiona, do you think there's um there's a, a generational thing here? I know you you have children yourself. Do you, do you, do you think that? Uh, I mean, it's hard. You can you can tell me. You can tell me. But I guess the sectarian stuff is always there under the surface. It's always there. It was particularly as you were growing up. It was particularly uh, sharp and vicious. But do you think this a new generation of people? I suppose like um, the generation of good the Good Friday Agreement, etc. Do you think? sectarianism is just less of a thing do you think they're talking about these real bread and butter do you think that's more or was it always the case was it always the case they're after those things i mean what, what there, ha- there is seems to be a generational dynamic and i think you're much better positioned than me to talk about it because because you're there obviously what, what do you think's going on there oh definitely it's generational um you know uh especially like the younger generation now like i, I would i would do a thing uh with, with young people you know mm. younger people older people and everybody in the middle um, I do a thing called the Human Library, mm-hmm. and when I talk to especially uh, the younger generation, what they actually say is, you know, if I say to them, uh, you know, would you know what your friend does just by their name? Would you know their religion? And they actually look at you as if you know you two heads, and they're like, no. And I says, but if that was the way that you knew what religion a person was. Would it matter to you? Would you do it? And they're like, no. 
so it's a less of a thing for the younger generation. Mm-hmm. I think it's sure, yeah. it, it, it's really interesting because because you grew up and it was like that, was it? You're like, what's your name? Where? What team do you support? And that those questions were were really significant. I imagine going. They were up very significant. You. you had to know which which uh, yeah which was your friend and who was your possible enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of ridiculous when you when you when you see it, especially from a uh, younger generation's eyes, and you think, I had actually it. <laughs> it's not even right that mm-hmm. you would you would judge somebody on uh, their religion. What mm-hmm. school we went to? What was their name? Um, I mean, it was a thing. It really was a thing. Because yeah. you had to be very careful uh, what you were saying around certain types of people. Yeah. That's that's what you would have believed back then. Because yeah. sometimes, presumably, it was it was life or death as well. I mean, it was it was a safety thing, a security thing as well. Like you, you had to be acutely aware uh, of who, who you were speaking to and stuff. It was because, uh, especially when we lived in the waterside, um, my two brothers had a... Um, I think Jim was sixteen, and my other brother Brenton, he was, he was about thirteen maybe, mm-hmm. and they had to get out of Derry. They had to leave and go to Cork, mm-hmm. the family friends. So they literally went to the opposite end of the country, yeah, uh, for protection, and they were only they were only children, yeah. And this was even before uh, Jim had had become a member of the IRA or anything. It was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there were loyalists. Um, groups and whatever uh, on the waterside that had attacked and jumped Jim before mm-hmm. so uh, I was too young to kind of understand all that it was only as I was getting older my mommy and daddy talked about it um, very fleeting you know when it would have been very it wouldn't have been in depth mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff that was kind of kept back from me and you know the, the younger members of the family yes of course but that was a thing because they were Catholic because there was like, you know, they seen themselves as Irish, there was an affiliation of, of Irishness. Mm-hmm. It was just it was just, you know, to think about it as as a thing that had, had even happened. Sometimes when I'm talking about it I actually think is all of this real? <laughs> you know, it's it's just so strange to think that we came through all of that. Yeah. Um you can't get out the other side, you know, without sort of being impacted. And it's not always at the time, it's actually when you're older, like mm-hmm. like now, I'm I'm nearly fifty five, and and there's, there's things that I look back on, and it it upsets me or it gets me, and it just it unnerves me. Things that I probably talked about a million and one times before, and then it, there's just something that hits home to me then. Mm-hmm. But you know, like, things like um, knowing what what side of the fence you were on for for us was a thing. For the yeah. younger generation, not so much. They just they're more they're more focused on their education. They're more focused on where they want to go. Um, back in back in my day, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't have been too focused on your education really because sure, what was the chances of a Catholic going to university? Yeah, because um, those were, those institutions were segregated as well, or or made inaccessible to very inaccessible, weren't they? Made education more inaccessible, yeah. aye, yeah. because um, you wouldn't have really got. The university, if he if he hadn't have come from, you know, maybe a more a middle class background, I'm, I'm a proper working class girl. I'm, yeah. I'm from a working class background, and fiercely proud of that. I must say, yes, fiercely proud of that. Um, but you know, they they even think that way. You didn't think that way, because mm-hmm. what you done was, um, you went to school, you left in fifth year. Mm-hmm. You know, some people left earlier, 
and you walk straight into a job in a factory. Yeah. You know, a shirt factory here was the big thing. Uh, but it was mostly factories here. Yeah. So, and then it was kind of, you know, you, you were already going out with somebody, you met and married somebody and you had children. So there was no, um, kind of the, the way young ones are nowadays, they, they have it all mapped out. You know, they're going to get their, their grades. They're going to go to university. They're going to, yeah. and, and especially, you know, uh, a lot of young ones from here will go off to England. Mm-hmm. Like my niece is in England at the moment, uh, studying. Yeah. So, you know, they scatter, they, they get away, they, they build a life. Whereas mm-hmm. we didn't really have that uh, foresight of having a, a future because you just never knew if you were actually ever going to nick that stage of your life because of the way things were here. And yeah. it was a conflict and it was a war and it was horrible, rotten and violent. Yeah. Do you think that was particularly the case for for young women as opposed because obviously, I mean, there is a, a long history of, the Irish high unemployment in Ireland and people leaving. Do you think it's particularly the case that that women stayed and, and men went off? Do you think there's a kind of gendered thing going on there? I oh, definitely. Um, the, the men did go off. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even even when my mother and father got married, my father had moved uh, moved over to Corby. I think it was. To, uh, it was Corby. Yeah. Um, he was. Uh, he got a job over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but. It, it always was kind of a thing where the women tend to do the children. They raise the family. Yes. Uh, they, they were doing the, the, the job of two people. Yes. Um, but Unpaid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. It's the worst paid job. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I raised five, you know, so not the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, two grandchildren as well, maybe, of that. Yeah. But, uh, but the women were, they were a strong bunch, you know. They're, they're tough, tough ladies out there. <laughs> formidable. I've noticed, yeah, yeah. Formidable is the word. <laughs> really formidable women and uh, took no nonsense, no well shenanigans. Um, <laughs> I think, definitely, I think it's been filtered down to me. A hundred percent. There's no doubt, uh, no doubt whatsoever. But, you know, the women did, uh, they stuck together, and but there was that uh, intense sense of community Um and actually, it wouldn't have been just about one side or, or the other. Mm-hmm. Women, women kind of tend to they care kind of across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, because even when we lived on the waterside, uh, there was there was Protestant families would have come and visited us, and and us them. Um, so it filtered. It wasn't it wasn't as kind of what do you say? It wasn't as solid as you don't you don't visit them. There were some. It was a wee bit of a crossover, but not much. And you always kind of, you just were wary, I suppose. Yes. But it was, um, it was a, a friendship, but it was a, mm. you kept some things close to your chest. But, you know, but the women definitely did take a major uh, stand where the men had to go off and work. And, mm. and, and you know, as we were talking about earlier on, some a lot of the men actually were going over and, and they were brickies, they were labourers, especially in London. Yeah. You know, so... There was a lot of that. Um, so I, and then, then some women would have followed up their, their husbands over to England because it was a better way of life. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, the man that actually held my brother as he was dying, mm-hmm. um, he passed there uh, about a year and a half ago, two years. Um, he said to me that, that night was the, the reason he left Derry and left oh, Ireland. Really? Okay. And he ended up living in England. Mm-hmm. So I think there was, 
even though we, we would have seen the maybe the English or the, the Brits as um kind of as our oppressor. Mm-hmm. It, you know, England was very much the escape for a lot of Irishmen and, and families. So, you know, it's I suppose a double edged sword. There's the there's the the conflict of, you know, of what's happening to to the people by the British and then there's the well over there is the better opportunity, kind of the yeah. land opportunity. So it's, it's, I think it's always going to be that kind of, um, I think until our generations kind of die out, the younger generation aren't holding on to this as much. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's the sense of, you know, um, going forward. And definitely we have to go forward. We have to keep going forward. Going back is a wee bit futile because, um, as I always say, I think you can look over your shoulder and see where you were in the past and, and understand how that was the worst and the darkest and the bloodiest part of our our lives. Do we want to have that happen again? Personally, no, I don't. I I don't believe in that at all. Um, I, I don't want us to go down that road ever again. Um, I don't. I wanted to just to round up, just to just to round it up a little bit. Um. Um, and it's a question I'll put to the other to the, to the other guests as well. We see, in fact, you you alluded to it earlier. You have um, the the successes of Sinn Fein. There's a sense at the base of unionism that the people who are traditionally unionists, the young generation we just talked about, are not into that stuff. The stuff we've criticised there, the 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 yeah. you know the the kind of very traditional conservative values. Um, so you have a, a slight a changing changing demographics, but also changing yeah. kind of kind of changing a balance of power in the political parties and underpinning that i suppose is the idea is the question will there be uh, a reunification in ireland do you think um i don't think it's as impossible as i used to think it was mm-hmm. uh and i actually think brexit was was such a great hand and pushing us towards it mm-hmm. how do you mean um well, especially here in the north, we we voted to, to remain within uh, Europe. But well, that you know that democratic decision was taken out of our hands as usual, yes. and we were you know we're, we were taken out. But we have a special kind of um, situation here. We're on one island, but we're split into two. Mm-hmm. So there are people here that you know, especially in the border counties. Part of their, their farmland is, is in the north. Part of their farmland is in the south. Yes. You <laughs> follow this going on. So then when they started talking about a hard border, I was totally against that because that harkens back to the, you know, the good old battle days. Um, and I just I never thought it was going to be a thing that would ever work. But, but I think um, what happened with Brexit is the people started they realized that we had a special position yeah and for for good stay you know for free travel up and down this country we had got so used to having the free travel mm-hmm. because when when all the uh checkpoints were taken down and you know you didn't have the duty and excise kind of having to go through that all the time either once they were taken away it's, it's just been a much easier life there, there is nearly a sense of normality like everybody else has, and why can't we have it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think 
I think once that, that kind of talk about borders and, you know, uh, going back up, I think people started realising this is really not what we want. We've got so used to living this way. It's our right to live this way now. Yes. Um, so will there ever be a United Ireland? Personally speaking, I, I would love a United Ireland, but I would say not in the, the you know, that the romantic, mystical notion of, you know, it's all green and, you know, mm-hmm. it's just the Irish. We do have to share the island, mm-hmm. which we are doing still at the minute. But I think that there has to be a, a place where there probably have to be a referendum yeah. to see what the people want more than anything. And um, I actually think, I think it's, it's probably a wee bit 50-50 at the minute. I'm not too sure. I wouldn't be 100% sure. But I do think that people are just wanting now a sense of ease, of movement, of freedoms. Um, we're fed up with the green and the orange. The majority mm-hmm. of us are fed up with that entrenched kind of notion. Mm-hmm. There's parties coming along now, especially like the Alliance Party. And uh, they're speaking, you know, for every voice, really. And I think the younger generation are moving themselves away from national identity. You know, yeah. well, some will call themselves British, some will, and they'll call themselves Northern Irish, and they'll call themselves Irish. Mm-hmm. So it's it's evolving. And I don't know if, if there'll be a United Ireland uh, in my lifetime, but I, I would say I would say it, there's more of a hope of it, or there's more of a possibility of it than there ever was now. On that note, um, on that hopeful note, Fiona, thank you. You've been fantastic as ever, as I knew you would be. Um, thank <laughs> you so much. Sport. Thank you so much for your time, and I'll, I'll be over very soon. Um, Looking forward to, to seeing you. To see you. Thank you so much. Aye, not a bother. Chatty Sinjo. This has been Warrior Nation. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. We want to reach as many listeners as possible. So, whatever platform you're hearing this on, please pop us a five star rating. Apparently, it really helps in terms of spreading the word. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram on at Forces Watch. This episode was recorded with music from Easy On Noise. See you next time.